0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. I have a question for you. What will your legacy be? Will you be remembered for your commitment to liberty? Or will you waver at the sight of adversity? Will you hold the line and stand for truth no matter how popular it may be? Or will you bend to peer pressure? Will you let your faults and failures define your story? Or will you overcome your challenges and push forward in pursuit of something greater? Will you stand firm and be a champion of freedom? Or will you let it be said that you did nothing? Throughout our history, ordinary people have risen to the occasion to do extraordinary things in the name of liberty. These people were not perfect, far from it. Yet in spite of their faults and failures, they never looked back. No matter how many times they fell, they continued to get back up. This is their legacy. Because of their commitment, Our world is more free. Each and every one of us has the power to follow in their footsteps. It's up to us to pick up that torch. John Adams often gets the short end of the stick among his fellow founders. Granted, much of this was self-induced. During the debates leading up to independence in 1776, He earned a reputation as being the most brash and disliked delegate in Philadelphia. Although he was America's second president, he was the only president from the founding era, in other words, the first five, not to secure a second term. This was because of his actions surrounding the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798 and the Quasi-War with France. His presidency also happened to be sandwiched in between the two titans of the revolution, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, making it easier to be overlooked. He played an important role during the revolution, but one that was far away in France. Additionally, any claim to his role in French support for the American cause was overshadowed by Benjamin Franklin. He can't even claim to be the most influential or popular Adams in his day, That honor was secured by his cousin, Samuel Adams, who became known world over for his role in cultivating the American Revolution. Despite his important role, he wasn't the only one who wrote the Declaration of Independence. He wasn't in the country for the crafting or the signing of the Constitution either. Nonetheless, John Adams proved to be highly important and influential among the Founding Fathers in very key ways. He was one of the earliest and loudest voices for independence from Great Britain. He was responsible for the roles that many of the other key founding fathers played. His commitment to truth in spite of popularity is a standard that shaped America for generations to come. It may be surprising for some listeners that he is featured on this program as a hero of liberty. After all, many actions he took during his presidency undermined the Constitution and threatened the First Amendment. It is true that he made some major mistakes in his lifetime that undermined the very values he fought for. There is no hiding from that. However, these mistakes were just that, mistakes. It doesn't represent Adam's lack of commitment to liberty, but rather a failure to live up to that commitment. This is in contrast to a figure such as, for example, Alexander Hamilton, who was less concerned with liberty and more concerned with national stability and greatness. Thomas Jefferson perhaps summed up the contrast between the two men best when he pointed out that Adams, quote, was honest as a politician as well as a man. This is opposed to Hamilton, who believed, quote, in the necessity of either force or corruption to govern men. As we shall see, in spite of mistakes made during his presidency, the majority of his life was spent defending liberty, not only from the threat of a king, but also from an overzealous mob. John Adams was born on October thirtieth, 1735, in what is today Quincy, Massachusetts. They say liberty and patriotism isn't passed through the bloodstream, but if it were, that would certainly be the case for John. Being born just over 100 years after the settlement of Plymouth, John Adams was actually a direct descendant from the Pilgrims. Having such a rich family history and growing up in Massachusetts during a critical time made John understand the value of liberty and the rights of man. His father, also John Adams, was a farmer, shoemaker, and congressionalist deacon. Not only did he instill his firstborn with an appreciation for liberty, but a sense of humility and a strong work ethic. Massachusetts culture at the time, due to its Puritan roots, emphasized the virtue of hard work. Additionally, society maintained an appreciation for commerce and private property that stemmed from its heritage with the Pilgrims. These things combined made the colony very industrious, ripe with opportunity. Initially, John Adams wanted to pursue a life similar to that of his father's, one that was simple on a farm, yet would allow him to capitalize on the ever-growing industries around him. His father had other plans. It was customary in those days for a father to send his firstborn son to college to get a proper education. Since John was the firstborn, he had every intention of making that happen for him. Growing up, the young Adams struggled academically. He preferred to be using his hands outside, and the rigid nature of his schooling made it difficult for him to keep interest. It wasn't until his father hired a new teacher, Joseph Marsh to instruct his son that John truly blossomed academically. Marsh was known as an excellent teacher. Unlike the rigid education structure of the day, his teaching methods were more creative and and liberal than the norm. It turned out this was exactly what young John needed to truly reach his learning potential. So effective, in fact, that in 1755, Harvard University accepted John Adams at only 15 years of age. His Harvard days were paramount to who he would become. Over the next four years, he acquired a strong education, and in particular, a deep understanding of philosophy. Toward the end of his time at Harvard, he began to obtain an interest in the law. Yet with this, he had a dilemma. Becoming an attorney was not an esteemed career path in Massachusetts. Many, including his father, viewed lawyers as morally bankrupt individuals who will do anything to get ahead. The stereotype was not without just cause. This was a time when the courts were notoriously corrupt, and lawyers often profited from this corruption. Many didn't think you could go into the profession without selling your soul. To John, however... People needed proper, unbiased legal representation, lest the corruption would continue to grow. This fundamental belief in due process and a fair trial would come to define his life. His father wanted him to join the clergy, but after a year of soul-searching, John Adams determined that he does not need to sell himself out in order to provide people with the proper legal representation that they had a right to He started off studying law in 1756 where he became a law clerk for James Putnam. During his studies and training, he realized that he was making the right choice and that the practice of law is not synonymous with selling your soul if you don't allow it. After two years of his apprenticeship under Putnam, Adams passed the bar in 1758 and finally started his legal career. This truly could not have come at a better time. With the first signs of revolution beginning to brew in Massachusetts in the 1760s, Adams was in a perfect position to not only understand the American cause, but to influence it. In 1761, Adams was present for what would become one of the most important court cases leading up to independence. James Otis Jr., a powerful and well known Massachusetts lawyer, stood in front of the Superior Court, the predecessor to the state's Supreme Court, and made an absolute and authoritative condemnation against writs of assistance. In simplistic terms, writs of assistance served as a general warrant that would authorize soldiers to barge into any colonial home for any reason in search of whatever they deemed necessary. No probable cause or specified warrant was needed. As one can imagine, these writs of assistance were easily abused and violated the rights of British Americans. Adam sat and watched in amazement as Otis dismembered any claim of authority to use these writs against his fellow Massachusetts colonists. In fact, it was here where James Otis coined the phrase, taxation without representation is tyranny. John would later recount Otis's performance as the moment the revolution took root. Quote, The child of independence was then and there born, he said, and every man of an immense crowded audience appeared to me to go away as I did, ready to take up arms against writs of assistance. His resounding praise didn't stop there, stating that, quote, Otis was a flame of fire with a promptitude of classical allusions, a depth of research, a rapid summary of historical events and dates, and a profusion of legal authorities. Eventually, the cases made by Otis in 1761 would serve as the foundation of the Fourth Amendment so many years later. Certainly, even if Otis did not impact the colonies as much as John Adams had alluded to, his presentation sparked the spirit of revolution within John Adams himself. Here, John was witnessing in real time that his theory about being able to keep your principles as a lawyer was correct. More than that, James Otis demonstrated to John Adams just how powerful the courtroom could be in a fight against tyranny. While Otis lost his case, he did win the hearts and minds of his constituents. Despite being a generally mild-mannered person, he inflamed the passions of the citizens of Massachusetts. Never before had they been so eager and willing to fight for their liberties. This was a sentiment that would only grow more powerful in the years to come. John's passions were burning hot as well. Yes, for liberty but more so for a young lady named Abigail Smith. John met Abigail in 1759 after journeying to her parents' homes with his friend, Richard Crank. While Richard was engaged to Abigail's older sister, Mary, and was thus the reason for their visitation, John didn't want anything to do with the Smiths, including Abigail. John, who was never exactly known for his friendliness nor his manners, was nine years older than she was, who was only 15 at the time. Yet this wasn't the last time the two would meet. Richard ended up marrying Mary, and John had the opportunity to get to know Abigail and her family much better leading up to the wedding. As she matured over the next few years, John would begin to form romantic feelings for her. After several years of a budding relationship, John finally married Abigail on October 25th, 1764. Abigail was only 20 at the time, and John was only days away from turning 29 their union would go on to prove to be one of the strongest and most important in America's founding. Despite living in an age where women were expected to sit back and let the man lead the household, Abigail was well ahead of her time. While she was capable of being domestic, she was also incredibly intelligent, and frequently pushed and challenged John to his true potential. She was probably the only woman capable of keeping John's ego temperament, and stubbornness at bay. Certainly, no man nor woman would be capable of stopping her when she set her heart on something. Another unique aspect of their relationship, at least unique for their day, was that they were as much genuine friends with each other as they were lovers. John valued her insight and company as much as, and oftentimes more than, his fellow founding fathers. His letters to her would open with, My Dearest Friend, before detailing his unadulterated affection for her. As John would later tell Abigail, how full she made his heart, he wrote that, quote, "...the early possession you obtain there, and the absolute power you have ever maintained over it, leaves not the smallest space unoccupied." Abigail's love, affection, and friendship with John would prove to be vital in his successes. She would often, at times, be the only one willing to provide it. This was certainly the case in the Continental Congress, where he found it all too easy to make more enemies than friends. His brash, hot-headed, stubborn nature left many others in Philadelphia irritated and, at times, outraged with John leading up to independence. Yet his brashness may have been exactly what his fellow representatives needed. Of course, John had no problem. Problem taking things a step too far, but most of the time he would boldly say the unpopular truths that needed to be said. Adams knew that reconciliation with the British was foolish and a waste of time. Even after the war broke out, many were hoping that the colonists and Great Britain would find peaceful ways to make amends and reunite as one country. Not John Adams. He took no issue being perceived as the bad guy if it meant making the case for independence. Once they heard it, it could not be unheard. The greatest mistake he thought he could have made is to say nothing in the face of British oppression. This was the exact opposite approach of Thomas Jefferson who supported independence but sat and listened to the debates on the main floor without input. It was exactly because of this opposite approach that made his support for independence so powerful when it occurred. No longer did it appear that only the hot-headed Adams was foolishly railing for separation. With the support of the more leveled Virginia delegation, it was a very serious proposal. His actions leading up to the summer of 1776 further demonstrated his commitment to what he perceived is right and true in the face of popularity, yet his brash personality did not lack a sense of self-awareness. He knew he was right, but he also knew that he stepped on too many toes to be the face of independence in Congress moving forward. As it became time to write the Declaration of Independence, he approached Thomas Jefferson to pen the document. As detailed in last week's episode, Jefferson was a far superior writer, but he was also well-liked and respected, unlike Adams. Virginia was also the most crucial state to secure support over. It was easily the biggest and wealthiest colony in 1776, and their delegates were some of the most renowned in Congress. Adams already tried to propel Virginia to the front of this discussion once. He was the man who nominated George Washington to become Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army. A very wise move on his part, but securing Virginia for independence itself would be game-changing. If a Virginian is at the face of this separation, it will be much easier to secure the support of the other 12. Easier, but still not easy. New York, Pennsylvania, and South Carolina were still holding out, and Delaware was in a deadlock. John Dickinson of Pennsylvania proved to be the antithesis of John Adams, a man bound by his principles and conscience, except in his case this meant not supporting independence. He believed the British were oppressive, without question, but refused to support separation until every peaceful measure was exhausted. In his mind, that had yet to be the case, despite the fact that the colonies were already at war with Great Britain at this point. As the vote for independence neared, John Dickinson knew he was in the minority, but that didn't matter to him. He refused to support something so world-altering if he didn't fully believe in it. He knew that popular support was with independence, and offered a bit of foreshadowing concerning his future political career. Quote, My conduct this day, I expect, will give the finishing blow to my once too great and my integrity considered now too diminished popularity. He stood against independence on July 1st during the pre vote to measure where everyone else stood. Still, it was becoming hard to fight against the inevitable, especially when British actions were perpetually getting worse by the day. In the end, he didn't vote in favor of independence, but he didn't stop it either. He abstained, and in doing so, secured Pennsylvania as a yay vote. With the biggest opponent to independence, and to John Adams, out of the way, the other states fell in line. Only New York didn't vote for independence, citing a lack of instruction from their state assembly. The state abstained. With no nay votes to derail it, independence passed on July 2, 1776. John Adams, once the most hated man in Philadelphia, successfully convinced the American colonies to form a new nation. Despite being his primary rival, Adams held no ill will toward Dickinson. He recognized his deep conviction and found him to be a man of honor, despite that conviction landing him on the other side of the issue of independence. That quote, Mr. Dickinson's alacrity and spirit certainly become his character, and sets a fine example. Rather than sign the declaration, John Dickinson left Congress to join the militia, committed to defending his countrymen. After this historic event, John Adams fought for his country as well, but not in a physical manner. In 1778, John Adams and his son, John Quincy Adams, left America for a diplomatic mission to France. If America was going to secure independence, it needed international support. However, to say that John wasn't prepared for the cultural shock that awaited him in France is an understatement. John was a humble, if brash, man from Puritan, Massachusetts. He grew up in a culture that still valued modesty and hard work, France was everything that John was not. Full of pomp and ceremony and, let's just say, a more fluid moral code. Adams was prepared to get down to business for the sake of his country. What he didn't understand is that in order to get down to business in 18th century France, he had to woo them over first. To make matters worse for him was that Benjamin Franklin understood this all too well and was happy to oblige. Dr. Franklin arrived before John did, and was leading the negotiations. As someone who was already internationally famous, especially in France, he fit in wonderfully. This irritated Adams a great deal, feeling as if Franklin cared more about his own personal indulgences than he did the American cause. Unfortunately for Adams, his services weren't really required anyway. Before he even reached France, an alliance was already secure for the American cause. Later that year, Congress dissolved the French diplomatic committee and made Franklin the first ambassador to France. While happy for the cause, Adams couldn't help but feel stepped on. Still, his time in Europe wouldn't be a total waste. He traveled to Holland in an attempt to secure a loan from a country other than France. He feared that too much dependency on them would only have America trade British shackles for French. His efforts proved to not reap much success at first. The Dutch had no intention of ruining their relationship with one of their best trading partners, no matter how much they believed in the American cause. However, after Washington defeated Lord Cornwallis at the Battle of Yorktown, thus winning the war, things changed. Now that they were no longer at war with one another, the Dutch recognized America as a nation, and Adams was finally able to secure a loan. John Adams continued to serve in a diplomatic capacity for the United States and Europe throughout the 1780s. He returned to France to help negotiate the Treaty of Paris in 1782, which outlined the terms for peace between Great Britain and America, as well as France. From there, he served as the first ambassador to Great Britain, a role that suited him much better than the French ever did. This was arguably an even more important role than Franklin as the French ambassador, as establishing commerce and diplomacy with a former adversary is the first step in preserving a lasting peace. He remained in London from 1785 to 1788, when he would finally return home and see his children after so long. This was also the reason for Adams' absence during the Constitutional Convention. He returned to his farm in Massachusetts, but it wouldn't be long before public life would call his name again. In 1789, John Adams was elected as Vice President of the United States, serving under George Washington. The man Adams helped to elevate to new levels of greatness was now about to return the favor. Although serving as Washington's vice president set Adams up to succeed him when the time came, he became quite disgruntled with his governmental duties, or should I say his lack thereof, As a man who needed to do something at all times, he came of the opinion that the Vice Presidency is quote, the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. He perhaps should have been more careful for what he wished for. Toward the end of Washington's administration and leading into the beginning of his own, the revolution in France was truly heating up. Their revolution quickly showed how different it was from America. Not separation, but overthrow. Not independence, but vengeance. Still, the French enjoyed the support of many Democratic Republicans in the United States, including his dear friend Thomas Jefferson. Adams deeply feared the threat of mob rule. His entire life, he stood for what was right, whether he had all the support or none. That which is popular isn't always right, and that which is right is not always popular. This conviction worked to his benefit during the lead-up to independence. Now, it would be his downfall. As he became president, he remained committed to curbing the threat of insurrection and French sabotage. After the French attempted to bribe an American diplomatic committee in order to maintain peace, the country became irate. The Federalist Party controlled the federal government. They saw this as their opportunity not just to thwart the French, but to thwart Jefferson's Republicans. Congress passed four bills. Three of them dealt with foreign nations and enemy aliens. But the most disturbing act passed was the Sedition Act of 1798. This bill criminalized speech or press against the federal government that was deemed dishonest. What constitutes as dishonest? As it turns out, anything the federal government didn't like. While initially hesitant, Adams caved to Federalist colleagues in Congress and signed all four bills into law. His fear of one mob led him to bend to the will of another. This obvious violation of the First Amendment hung over his head throughout the remainder of his first term. He lost his reelection in eighteen hundred to his friend turned political adversary, Thomas Jefferson. Because of this, he became the only president from the founding era to only serve one term. After his defeat in 1800, he returned to his farm in Massachusetts, Peacefield, where he lived out the remainder of his days. John's episode with the Alien and Sedition Acts are an unfortunate stain on an otherwise extraordinary life, but it was rooted in noble intentions, no matter how misguided or ill-informed the final result was. Throughout his life, one guiding light had defined his character. He refused to let any mob or moment of popularity tell him what is and isn't right, if it violates what he believes to be true. While most of the other founders were primarily concerned with power concentrated too much in one man or small group of people, Adams was concerned with just the opposite. He was all too aware that tyranny of the majority can be just as vicious, if not occasionally more so. After all, was this not the case in France that led to numerous deaths by means of guillotine? One man, in theory, can be reasoned with. Reason is nowhere to be found at the heart of an angry mob, only fierce passion. This can, of course, be capitalized for a righteous cause, but there always runs the risk of swinging too far in the other direction. John Adams held the position that liberty is not something that should be decided by the whims of the majority. Rights were not up for public discussion. Although he failed to strike the important balance between liberty and authority at the end of his career, it remained something that he felt deeply about. In fact, defending the rights of unpopular people during a turbulent time was arguably the most pivotal event that gave birth to his career. To understand that story, we have to go back to Boston in 1770. In the decade after James Otis's powerful case against writs of assistance, the Massachusetts colony became notorious for protests and rebel activity. Great Britain didn't do much to cool off the temperament, either. After the end of the Seven Years' War in 1763, Parliament passed the Stamp Act in 1765 in an attempt to pay off their war debts. The British had long treated the colonists in North America like second-class citizens, expecting them to foot the bill for the empire's globe-trotting ventures, but denying them the right to trade, commerce, or proper representation. The Stamp Act was a watershed moment leading up to the revolution. It imposed a direct tax on colonists and forced all documents or printed material to bear the royal stamp so the tax could be easily enforced. This tax stamp was to be on everything from legal documents, such as wills or deeds, and extended even to items like playing cards. The colonists were outraged, not just in Massachusetts, but all throughout America. Patrick Henry issued resolutions in Virginia's House of Burgesses condemning the acts and asserting that Great Britain had no right to impose taxes on the colonists. In Boston and the surrounding areas, Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty orchestrated protests. They burned effigies of royal officials who were tasked with enforcement of acts like this. They even raided Andrew Oliver's home, the local stamp distributor, and decapitated effigies of him. In order to prevent open rebellion, Parliament repealed the Stamp Act in 1766. But in doing so, they also reasserted their taxing authority over the colonists. One step forward and two steps back. The following year, Parliament again did just that. The Townsend Acts passed in 1767 and imposed indirect taxes on British imports, such as paper, glass, paint, and primarily tea. Bostonians weren't to be fooled, and protests reemerged. This time, the British anticipated this and increased their military presence in the city of Boston, further escalating tensions with the already outraged populace. Boycotts took place against British imported goods as a result, on top of the occasional angry mob. In 1769, much like with the Stamp Act, Parliament repealed the Townsend Acts in an attempt to calm down the residents. They removed taxes on most British imports, all except for a tax on tea. By this point, any potential that the British had to subdue the colonists in Massachusetts was lost. They could see through the charade that Parliament was playing. They weren't interested in the well-being of the people in America, they only cared about keeping royal subjects in line. They would try to bargain and appease at first, but once that failed, the threat of force was on deck. The military presence in Boston continued to grow. The people of Boston would call the soldiers lobsters and throw objects at them. Objects that were as harmless as snowballs, or as dangerous as rocks and glass. Tensions reached a new height in the winter of 1770. When a mob took a protest to a local loyalist store on February 22nd, a redcoat fired into a crowd to break up their presence. The bullet hit and killed an 11-year-old boy. All hell broke loose after this. Patriot propaganda depicted British troops slaying children. The people of Boston were sent into even more of a frenzy than they ever had been before. Clashes with citizens and troops intensified throughout the next several weeks. Finally, on March 5th, 1770, as the sun fell and snow blanketed the streets of Boston, a mob formed around a lowly redcoat on guard duty, Private Hugh White. At this point, the mob was only throwing threats and insults toward him, but it was enough to spook the troops. Backup came to reinforce the private's position, but the mob continued to grow. As things escalated, they began to throw mostly snowballs, but took it a step further and threw ice, rocks, and other hard objects. Captain Thomas Preston positioned the troops into formation as to fend off against the unruly mob. Bells were ringing, which was supposed to indicate that a fire had broken out. What happened next is one man's word against another, with the truth being lost to history. However, someone was heard shouting, fire, leading to someone's weapon being discharged. In the middle of the chaos and the confusion, the other Redcoats fired into the crowd, unsure if they had been fired upon or given the order to shoot. This was so much worse than the February 22nd incident. Five colonists were killed and six were wounded. As word of the carnage spread, disinformation also quickly spread on both sides. It was being called a massacre in the colonies. All of the soldiers involved were arrested and awaited trial for nine months. Finding a self-respecting attorney willing to defend the British in court was nearly impossible. Nearly. Fortunately for the soldiers, there was one lawyer in Boston who carried an esteemed reputation and remained committed to the rule of law no matter how much discomfort it may cause him personally. John Adams was only 34 at the time when he was approached to defend the Redcoats. Whether to take them or not would turn out to be probably the most important decision he would make in his life. On one hand, Adams hated British oppression as much as anyone in Boston. He was a patriot, and taking them on could ruin his reputation and his legal career. Could an angry mob even turn towards his home? It was certainly not out of the realm of possibility. However, there was a great burden he knew he would carry if he didn't take them on. He was trying to build a free society. At the time, that didn't quite mean creating an independent nation, It meant preserving liberty under the British crown. No people can be free if they are denied the right to a fair trial and due process, no matter who they are. If he didn't do it, nobody would. And the rule of man would reign supreme in the colony, not the rule of law. The thought of that frightened John far more than what any upset mob could do to him personally. He agreed to be their defense. The first thing Adams did to ensure that the troops could receive a fair trial was convince the judge to fill the jury full of non-Boston residents. Certainly, it would be nearly impossible to find an unbiased jury composed of city residents. However, even fast-spreading news in those days was slow to reach more rural areas. Still, he had to be very careful. Saying the wrong thing during the trial could damage his own reputation of impartiality. Fortunately for Adams, however, this is exactly where he thrived. There was no need to make this trial a commentary about British rule in America or about the dangers of an angry mob from the Patriots. This was about one thing and one thing only. The truth. Did the soldiers involved in the massacre maliciously fire upon innocent protesters? Were they provoked? Was it self-defense? Is there another variable as of yet unknown? These were the only questions Adams concerned himself with. And like a maestro directing a world-class orchestra, he cut to the heart of the issue with such precision that both parties were probably a little shocked at his ability. Certainly, it wasn't just his father who believed that attorneys were synonymous with corruption and moral depravity. It was a common belief because it was true. Yet John Adams showed the jury, and eventually America, a different way. He almost certainly was channeling the same conviction and authority of truth and logic that James Otis used in his presentation to the Superior Court almost ten years earlier. In a court of law, only the facts and evidence are to determine the fate of the accused, not suspicion, not fabrication, and certainly not passion. At a time when this standard was nearly non-existent, John Adams blazed a key trail for freedom in America. As he made his case, he questioned witnesses and forced everyone in the courtroom to look at what many refused to accept. As he neared closing one of his arguments before the jury, Adams told them that, quote, I will enlarge no more on the evidence, but I submit it to you. Facts are stubborn things. and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passions, They cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. His commitment to the truth made the verdict undeniable, at least to the jury. Most of the soldiers were found not guilty, citing self-defense and a reasonable fear for their safety. As for Private Hugh White and Captain Thomas Preston, they were found guilty of only manslaughter and accidental death, not premeditated or malicious. Their punishments were to be branded on the thumbs. Adams had successfully gotten the jury to put aside any passions they may have and let the facts fall where they may in perhaps the most passionate criminal case of his day. Furthermore, his clear unbiased actions during the trial also managed to convince the public that justice had indeed been served, no matter what they may have preferred the outcome to be. The result was that no violence or retaliatory mob broke out. As for Adams' career, it actually strengthened his reputation as both a lawyer and a patriot who was committed to the cause. If a man like John Adams could look at such a heated case objectively and defend the British successfully, more credibility was then given to the patriot cause. The rule of law had won the day. John Adams certainly made mistakes throughout his career, and especially as president. Yet this should not prevent us from looking at his whole life objectively as a hero of liberty. His commitment to the truth is a key value that founded the United States. His defense of the British gave the country a roadmap of the legal framework detailed in the Constitution. He was an imperfect man with an imperfect legacy. But John Adams never stopped striving for the truth in the face of passion. And that fact is as stubborn as he was. Thank you ladies and gentlemen for tuning in to this week's edition of Profiles in Liberty. This was a, uh, an interesting one for me to make because my opinions on John Adams have varied over the years. And uh, I was very much in the opinion that he was not a hero of liberty up until very recently. And the more that I learned about him, the more I couldn't help but appreciate him and like him, despite his many, many flaws, especially in his presidential administration. Um, So next week, we are going to be going over Benjamin Franklin and how he invented the American identity. I must say that next week's episode is probably one of my favorites that I uh, have put together so far. So please tune in for that. And in the meantime, if you have not subscribed yet to the show, what are you doing? Subscribe to Profiles in Liberty wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, Give us a five-star rating. Give us a little review. Tell us how much you love the show. Follow me on Twitter at Caleb Franz. Check us out on Twitter. We are libertarians. That's we, the letter R libertarians on twitter and subscribe to the profiles in liberty newsletter on substack there's a lot of great stuff on that i give you show updates Uh, i i add some stories at the end of it that don't quite necessarily fit for a whole show but are still great stories nonetheless so please subscribe to that this has been caleb franz of profiles in liberty